Hello there, this is Robin Taylor Zander, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee Podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Rolling Stone, hit songwriters tell all, from thieving artists to Grammy snubs. For Music Ally, how do streaming algorithms change the way we listen to music? From Music Watch, Generation Audio, a different way to look at audio listeners. And from Digital Media Association, the Fan Engagement 2023 Report. Oh my goodness, Jay, we've got so much to talk about. So, 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 so much to talk about. I suggest, Jay, that we start the show right now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Saturday that we are recording. It's good to see you, brother. Yeah, good to see you too. It is a little bit later. I'm still having coffee. Yes, it is. <laughs> are you a, an all day long Java drinker? No, no. I'm. No. Uh, What's the cutoff? What's the cutoff? This is it. This is the last one. This is it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is the last one, and that does not affect your sleep or anything. You, you're just. No, I, I don't you, sleep very much, so maybe that's why. <laughs> 
<laughs> I should look into that. Well, as your doctor, I suggest you maybe think about that a little bit more. And I uh, and, 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 and yet I, you, you you drink the coffee. You drink all the co- the world's population's coffee for for my portion as well. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Well, I'm a giver, you know. So let's uh, let's give a real big shout out to Robin Taylor Zander for that cool intro. And that song that you just listened to is his debut track, High and Low. And mm-hmm. uh, you may know Robin Taylor Zander is the son of Robin Zander, the lead singer from Cheap Trick. He's got his debut album. It's called The Distance, and that's dropping on April 21st. And uh, it is fantastic. I can't wait to share this with the world. And this is produced by Jack Douglas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Jack, of course, um, is an iconic record producer. He's worked with, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of great artists and a lot of great albums. You know, he produced uh, John Lennon, Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy. He produced one of my favorite albums, which is uh, Cheap Trick's first album. But he's worked with Aerosmith. He's worked with a lot of people. Yes, and uh, you know, Robin, of course, the father maybe one of the most underrated singers of the rock era. I mean, it's he's just not one of those guys that comes to the top of kind of the average Joe's mind. But I saw him last summer. And, I mean, and we looked it up today because he's 70. I mean, he has not missed a, a beat. Yeah. Original keys. And he just belts it. And clearly that... That uh, that gene has passed down to his kid. Yeah. yeah, they're both great singers, and they, they they're and different singers, but they're both yes. Uh, you know, Robin Zander Sr. Of course, that was my first concert <laughs> in high school. Yes, I right. I saw Cheap Trick opening for Kiss August thirteenth, nineteen seventy seven, and I've been a huge Cheap Trick fan ever since. And I don't think of Robin as being underrated only because I the people I hang out with are such huge Cheap yeah. Trick fans, and his name always comes up. Um, but uh, when you have a chance, check out Robin Taylor Zander High and Low. It's available uh, everywhere. Well, and I, uh, last summer when I saw them, as I've, I, I will repeat the story because you and I have talked about this, I went to see them at the Ventura County Fairgrounds. And I couldn't see stage right, so I couldn't see to my left, which is typically where Rick Nielsen, the guitar player in Cheap Trick, would be. Uh, so I was only seeing Robin Zander and then to his left, my right, seeing Tom Peterson, the bass player, and of course the drummer I could see behind them. Once I stood up, I noticed that there was no Rick Nielsen and it was Robin Taylor Zander. It, it took me a minute, you know, of, of, of going onto my phone and saying, what, what, what's going on? And, and Rick, Rick had had some sort of an injury and, and his son had, and Robin's son had filled in on lead guitar yeah. and he killed it. He yeah. was so good. He did God, some he dates fantastic. filling in for Rick, as you mentioned. And mm-hmm. he also did some dates filling in for Tom Peterson, the bassist uh, when, when he was out. So he's a jack of all trades. He's been playing with yes. Cheap Trick for, you know, five years. So um, I think Cheap Trick fans and just music fans in general will really uh, enjoy this uh, new music by Robin Taylor Zander. Great stuff. Great yeah. stuff. And how about that calendar, Jay? I mean, th- th- something so simple sometimes can just elicit a huge response oh, as yeah. the Surefire Media calendar did and does. For those that don't know, um, I included a link to Shorefire Media, that's it's a great uh, PR firm that we use. Um, they're what they call their best calendar, and it comes out a couple times a year, and it, it lists all the conferences and festivals and award shows and industry events, and it's 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 a great resource. 
And I asked uh, my friend Marilyn over there if I could share it um, in your morning coffee. And they said, sure. And I did. And I got uh, a ton of email from people who weren't aware of it. And they were like, where's this been all my life? And thank you so much. This is such a great resource. So if you haven't checked out your morning coffee, the newsletter yet, um, definitely go in there and download the PDF of the Shorefire Media Best Calendar. Very, very cool. And uh, and a great resource. I mean, it's and it's fun to kind of see and it steps outside of the music. I mean, it's sort of more more entertainment industry related, which is as it should be. You know, it's not just music. And yeah. Um, and I remember we used to have calendars when when I was working catalog at Capitol. Um, where, you know, you want to know what the anniversaries are. You want to know what else is going on in the marketplace when you're pushing out stuff. And, exactly. And, it's super crucial to do all that stuff. Yeah. So very we look at it a lot when we're looking at tours that are being mm-hmm. uh, booked. We look at it during the release cycle to see, you know, are we dropping this right in the middle of South by Southwest? You know, things like that. You can just kind of get a sense of what's going on in the, uh, in the general entertainment uh, area. So um, kudos yes. yeah, to yeah. Uh, the team over at Shorefire. We really love that calendar. Very cool. And we're going to have a, a couple of, ro- ro- at least one article from Rolling Stone, but we do want to talk about, they had a, f- <laughs> a really a great read, 50 Genuinely Horrible Albums by Brilliant Artists. That's a, that's a, uh, a another article that hit that we're just going to kind of chat Did about. Did you find second, anything but- in there that any of those albums that they say are 50 Genuinely Horrible Albums, did you find any in there where you went, wait a second, I like that album. Not so much, but I, what I found is like, I had no idea this album even existed. Oh, really? I, that's, oh, I had a bunch of them. Like, like number six is Black Sabbath Forbidden, and, and that has iced tea on it, because Tony Iommi was the only player left. I, I have no recollection of that record whatsoever. came out in 1995. Um, there's a bunch of stuff in here that I'm like, huh? I, I, I don't remember this record. Yeah. So, it's a no, great I didn't read. Find, Oh, it's a great read, and and of course it's it's very kind of snarky and and uh, <laughs> tongue in cheek in a lot of the stuff. Um, and it's yeah, subjective, it's really right? Well, of course it is, and all of these lists, you know, are so fun to go back and read. And um, uh, but but you you had mentioned there are a couple of things that you certainly noticed that that were, were records you liked. Yeah, one of which was not number thirteen. Look, Elton and if you John's like one of these jackets. records that they say are genuinely horrible. Um, that's, that's totally okay. It's just, you know, it's so subjective, but there were three, um, out of the list of 50 where I went, wait a second. I like those albums. One was Billy Joel, the bridge. Um, mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love that album. The other was, uh, Aerosmith nine lives. Um, and I know right. they had some problems during that time, but I don't care about that. I just, I thought it was a really cool record. And then the last one, which gets a lot of heat is uh, kiss the elder and it was a concept album and it got panned and it didn't sell very well and all of that stuff. But I don't care. I like it. I think the songs were yeah. very well written. Lyrically, it's good. And yeah, it was a concept that never got off the ground. And, you know, everybody considers it a failure. But uh, that's the great thing about music. There's no right or wrong answers. No, exactly. But it's very fun to read. And I just uh, I was chuckling. <laughs> Through the whole thing as I'm scanning it right now, it's just, it's really yeah, it's worth worth checking out. So it's, it's one of the, those articles in, that you know, it's one of the most read articles in your morning coffee this last week because of the fact that those kinds of headlines really grab people. They they love lists. You know, here are the top ten <laughs> things right. that are killing you. You know, it's people love lists. And uh, before we kind of jump in, um, you and I were talking last week 
um, about a story that featured um, uh, Kevin Bruner from uh, CD Baby. And if you don't mm-hmm. know Kevin, great guy. Um, he was the SVP of engagement and education at CD Baby. And, you know, he made a comment about artists and creators needing to be more strategic and, you know, in the tools that they use, you know, to gather fans. Um, and they really need to own their fans. So, you know, he had said that your fans should be tied to you as an artist, not tied to a platform or algorithm. Uh, amen. And we, uh, we shout that from the rooftops uh, early and often. And I had a chance to talk with Kevin uh, about this last week. Um, let's listen in on that conversation. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you know, for indie creators today, there's so much time and energy placed on platforms like TikTok and Instagram. But you recently stated that artists and creators need to be more strategic in using these tools to gather fans. Your fans should be tied to you as an artist, not tied to a platform or algorithm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, these platforms are great for connecting with people and can be uh, really great for building an audience. But at the end of the day, you don't own it. If it's just on that platform, you're building an audience for that platform and they own the relationship with them. So for an artist, I think it's becoming more important than ever to have a plan for moving them off platform where you can get an email address or phone number for texting and own that relationship. Because otherwise, you know, something can change and suddenly you don't reach those fans anymore. I mean, we've seen it already, but I think in past where like Facebook starts, you know, charging to reach your, Mm. your followers, otherwise your, your posts barely get shown to them. So we've seen that kind of thing a lot, but you know, then when there was talks of TikTok getting banned in the U S and it's been banned in certain other countries and um, you know, then, uh, Uh, Twitter seemed like it was on a a bumpy road for a bit. All those things, it's like you could wake up tomorrow and find out that uh, those million followers you have on a platform uh, no longer are yours and you have nothing. (laughs) That would be a huge bummer. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to own that audience. And I think you mentioned something about, you know, email. It's not sexy, but it still works and grabbing people's cell phones um, or cell phone numbers. Where are you seeing indie artists have success growing their audience outside of TikTok and Instagram? Well, I mean, if it's an online audience using video in some form or fashion has always been as far as using uh, online tools to, to grow an audience. Video is great. Um, I think, you know, uh, what we've been talking a lot about on our podcast is just about building anticipation is more important than ever. Um, nobody cares that you released music. Any, I mean, there's too much going on out there. Just the fact that you released music and put it out in the world does not mean anyone's going to go listen to it. And that building anticipation is really key, which is different than driving awareness. Uh, awareness is like telling people, hey, I've got this release. Building anticipation is making them care that it's happening. And that can happen in a number of ways. Um, I think uh, a big opportunity for artists right now is um, to really nail the live show again, because a lot of people are just really starting to get back out playing shows and touring and people, you know, um, you know, we ha- we emerged from COVID kind of last summer, but then there was another uh, wave and a lot of people were staying home this fall and, and around Christmas time. But I think people really that can nail the live show, probably an open opportunity at this point, because a lot of people are pretty rusty. 
it's kind of the shiny penny thing, isn't it, Jay? Where it's like, you know, what's new? What's everybody talking about? And let's run over here and do this exclusively, yeah. you know, yeah. instead of uh, a shiny penny. And you were, the shiny penny. And But you were mentioning that, you know, so many things like email, which is just so 1990s, uh, it's still effective. Very. And there are still things that you should do that maybe are not the new shiny penny on the block. Um that are still very, very effective and should be kind of a component of any marketing efforts you Absolutely. do with fan engagement. For yeah, sure. everybody wants that new shiny penny that you're referring to. And TikTok, Instagram can certainly be effective, but don't put all your eggs in one basket. And like you said, email isn't sexy, but it is so effective. You want to own your fans, right? And I would like to just give a shout out to some things that uh, Kevin Bruner and CD Baby are up to, like... You know, they have the DIY Musician podcast, which I absolutely love. Um, they have a cool blog. They have a conference, a DIY uh, Musician conference. So um, really great stuff there. And Kevin, thanks for uh, popping on and talking with us this week. Yeah, mucho appreciado. And I've been, uh, gosh, I, I've been a, a, a CD Baby user forever. I mean, I'm trying to remember early 2000s, I suppose, way, 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 way back. So those guys have been doing great work for a very long time. So always nice to hear about them. And Jay, when we do the show, we must reach out and thank our sponsors because we are a couple of lucky knuckleheads that we get to we do sure this show. Are. And we have wonderful sponsors, yes, including Bands in Town. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, including... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, including Banzoogle. I'm looking at the wrong side of the page. Jay. That's all right. It's uh, all good. Including Banzoogle, the Your Morning Coffee podcast, brought to you by our good friends at Banzoogle. We want to take the time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in just minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more so you can easily add content from your other online profiles and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans just start plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com try it free for 30 days and then use the promo code morning coffee all one word to get 15 percent off the off any subscription that's bandzoogle.com promo code morning coffee yes sir and the uh, your morning coffee podcast is also brought to you by hypebot since 2004 hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered consumed marketed and monetized it's edited daily by founder bruce houghton with help from alana bonilla hypebot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Now I can do Bands in Town. Over <laughs> 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized console alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, sir. And finally, Music Business Association. Uh, they put on the Music Biz Conference, which has been a point of origin uh, for esp uh, inspiration and collaboration in the music business for many, many years. Uh, join us there in Nashville, May 15th through the 18th, and check out their website. Uh, they just posted um, kind of the uh, agenda 
not uh, yeah. all of uh, not everything there, but uh, a lot of it. And there's some really great stuff. Check it out. Music Business Association. Indeed. And Jay Gilbert will be there. <clears throat> I'm trying to move uh, some, some of my schedule to be there as well. And it's always a good time. So we do want to thank, though, the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town for uh, rocking our worlds and helping us. We really appreciate it. And Mike, before we jump into the stories, one quick thing I wanted to touch on. Uh, you and I are big fans of, uh, of uh, Glenn Peoples' weekly email called The Ledger. Yes. And uh, I thought it was really interesting this week um, where he's talking about earnings. And there were some things I learned in there um, that a lot of times you hear about these earnings reports, but they're nuanced and there's some details that you need to know. So if you look at his email um, this week, he mentioned that keen observers noticed that last quarter's Warner Music Group global streaming revenues were down 2.6% year over year, a rare sputter in the music industry's main engine of growth. The company's total revenue declined 7.8% as losses in recorded music's physical and digital revenues couldn't make up for publishing gains. Right. He says, on its face, a year-over-year decline in streaming revenue, the driving force behind growth at labels, as well as the rise in music catalog valuations, might seem alarming. Declines are routinely seen in download and physical sales. Streaming is is typically the dependable bright spot of any earnings report. Right. The decline was more noticeable when compared to companies that released earnings for the same quarter, like Sony Music, right? They posted their... um, they, they posted strong growth for the same period. Sony Music's streaming revenue improved 33.2% in its recorded Yikes. music division and 59.8% in its publishing. Uh, Reservoir Media didn't show streaming softness last quarter either, and they, they go on to talk about that. So he, he, he points out, like, well, what happened? Some of it's due to a quirk of Warner Music Group accounting. Some of it is due to Warner Music Group, and some of it, uh, some of the factors reflect the entire music business. Um, he states in the article that one factor in Warner Music Group's weak streaming revenue was a shorter quarter. Um, yeah. Warner Music Group's quarter last quarter had one fewer week than the prior quarter, which gave the company a tough basis for comparison even before other factors could be considered. And he points out, and I thought this was really interesting, a 14-week quarter has 7.1% more days to generate income than a 13-week one. And that's a big gap to overcome. Adjusting for that, Warner Music Group streaming revenues would have been up 5% more year over year. And only a numbers geek like Glenn would actually sit down with a calculator and figure this stuff out, which is fabulous, though. So it also mentions the stronger dollar. Uh, Warner Music Group's financial statements are reported in dollars. Sony, on the other hand, reports in yen, UMG in euros. That also played a part in decline. In WMG's recorded music division, streaming revenues declined 4% as reported, but were flat on a constant currency basis, Ah. which assumes no... No change in foreign exchange rates. In, a pub, in its publishing division, streaming revenues grew 13.2% as reported and 16.8% at this constant currency. 
Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I, most people miss that when I'm reading about these earnings reports, you know, leave it to Glenn to kind of dig in there. And the last thing I'll say is Warner music group also blamed, you know, the soft streaming numbers on a new release lineup that their CFO, Eric Levin called quote, a softer, largely U S based release schedule. So you put all that together and you get a clearer picture of Warner music groups, uh, earnings report. Good job. Glenn. Yeah, absolutely. Good job, Glenn. Yeah. And it's again, you know, it just goes to show you that it's so easy to kind of look at these kind of top line headlines and, and I wouldn't say panic, but just kind of be concerned sometimes unnecessarily. And like you said, you know, Glenn, Glenn has the chops to kind of go, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then kind of get out his spreadsheets and calculators. And, you know, he's got one of those little hats that the <laughs> little visors that accountants wear and exactly. he is burning the midnight oil, but good yeah. stuff. Really interesting yeah. to hear that, that, uh, and, and of course the ledger is so fantastic. His, yeah. Highly his, uh, recommend it. Uh, you subscribe to billboard pro and you get a few really great, uh, emails, uh, from, from billboard. And thankfully, uh, that's, uh, That's one of them. Um, Our first story is really near and dear to my heart because I work closely with songwriters. And some of these things have been uh, talked about uh, behind closed doors, but rarely have they been talked about in a public forum. Um, This is from Rolling Stone, written by Brian Hyatt. And the headline is, Hit Songwriters Tell All, From Thieving Artists to Grammy Snubs. And trust me when I tell you that Everybody that's in the professional songwriting arena, they know this stuff and they talk about this stuff and, you know, they name names. And there are certain artists out there who are taking pieces of songs that they didn't write, for example. This particular piece is really broken up into six segments by six prominent songwriters and they weigh in on this brutal business of of songwriting. Yes. The first is Emily Warren. She's written for Dua Lipa, Khalid, and Lizzo, among many others, and released a solo album, Quiet Your Mind, back in 2018. She says, though, I co-wrote Don't Let Me Down for the Chainsmokers, which won a Best Dance Recording Grammy. And not only was I not invited to the Grammys, but I didn't get a trophy. I had to pay 80 bucks for a piece of paper that symbolized the award. It was just unfortunate because the engineer got an award and the featured artist got an award. Everyone but the people who wrote it got trophies. It's hard not to not go home after that and be like, I'm worthless in this equation. And if you're worthless in the equation, no part of you is going to be like, I'm going to put my foot down now and insist that I'm properly compensated. I think songwriters need to feel like they have enough value to respect themselves when it comes to actually doing business. Wow. That's depressing. That is heartbreaking. Really depressing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one of the six is Warren Oak Felder, and he's a producer and songwriter. He's written for Nicki Minaj, um, Usher, Chris Brown, uh, Jennifer Lopez, many others. And, and he puts it a little bit differently. He says, imagine if I wanted to get a house built, right? I'd have to hire contractors and do a multitude of things. Now, imagine if I told them, listen, come to my house. I'm not going to pay you unless the house becomes famous. Contractors would be like, okay, you're not getting a house built today, buddy. That's essentially the state of the music industry right now for songwriters. And I think it's unfair that they have to deal with the inequity. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, the next one up is Kevin Griffin, who's the frontman and songwriter for Better Than Ezra. He's also co-written with artists from David Cook to Bare Naked Ladies. He's also got a book out called The Greatest Songs, Spark Creativity, Ignite Your Career, and Transform Your Life, which is going to come out in April. Mm. He says, as a songwriter, you used to be able to say, hey, man, I don't need to produce. I'm just going to be in that room and I'm going to bank on myself. If I get in there, I'm going to write and be part of a great song. Now we're like, oh gosh, the odds of making any money on this song are so minuscule. Why am I doing it? So what a lot of songwriters are doing is when they're when you're in a session now with a TikToker or an independent artist, you're like, I need to have part of the master recording as well because there's a lot of money to be made on the master side. It's a touchy subject. It's going to happen. But what I hope is going to happen is because right now the songwriter is getting left pretty much in the dust. And I don't care how great of a producer you are. If you don't have a great song, you don't have anything. As a veteran songwriter, I'm so happy that many of my masters have reverted back to me, all the Ezra ones we control. But just songwriting alone, it's really tough going out there. I'm not complaining, though. This is just where we are now. I'm pivoting, and I'm doing ad TV and licensing-centered sync projects and different things, and I'm an eternal eternal optimist because I saw the 90s and the 2000s where it was, the end of the industry, as he says. Now there's just tons of money being made on the master side. Okay, how do I weave my way into it? Unless you're Green Day or Coldplay, some bands that always have been massive, you've just got to diversify. If you want to stay in this career, you need to have a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah, so true. and the next one is written by Al Sherrod Lambert, and it touches on healthcare. Now, um, Al has written for Janet Jackson, Pitbull, Isley Brothers, Ariana Grande, and Brandy, among others. Um, amazing songwriter. And he says that publishing companies have a role to play too. You know, he says, my idea is that artists who just signed to a major publishing company should at least have the option of popping into that company's healthcare program because Obamacare can still be expensive. I think about my friend, my friend uh, from New Jersey as well. I went to college with him. Uh, His name was Kyle Stewart. In 2014, we were nominated together for an R&B song of the year. Uh, It was called Without Me, um, recorded by Fantasia featuring Kelly Rowland and Missy Elliott. The next year, Kyle died at 27 years old. He went to the hospital with chest pains and they told him he was going to have to have some tests and he asked and they asked if he had insurance. He did not have insurance. So he said, I'll go home and sleep it off. Unfortunately, he didn't make it. Oh my goodness. It is awful. But you know, one of the things that that I think about when I read this, Jay, is is the difference in um in how much how the songwriting uh profession has uh has changed. You know, you used to really just see one or two songwriters on a given track. Now it's not uncommon to see six, seven, eight songwriters. And so, you know, it's, first of all, they're not making enough money, just period anyway. But also when you factor in that the pie is, is uh, divided between oftentimes between so many different songwriters, um, uh, you know, it's just, it's not like it used to be, unfortunately. No, it's not. And, it's something that you and I, when we spoke to Merck, uh, Mercuriatus from Hypnosis Song Funds, he he has stressed many times, and we saw him do this just the other day. Um, it's the most important part of the equation for this music business. Everything right. starts with the song. It starts with the songwriter, and they are the least remunerated. There's that word again. Thank they're you they're the least that. paid in this whole equation. And yes, there have been improvements, but when you read an article like this, it it really brings it all back home that there's still so much 
work to do. I'll just touch on a couple of others really quickly. One was Scott Harris, you know, who's written with Sean Mendez, Justin Bieber, many others. And he says that it's definitely a moment where the song comes out and there's like eight or nine writers in the credits. And I'm thinking to myself, I wrote that in a room with three people, uh, you know, and that's, that's a problem too. There's an old joke in Nashville, you know, change a word, get a third, but there are also artists that will demand that they get a piece of the publishing if you want yeah. to write with them. And of course that's, that's just inherently wrong. And they're afraid to speak out some of these songwriters because they won't uh, have a gig. And just to kind of put a exclamation point um, on this article, um, when they talk to Sam Hollander, who's written with panic at the disco Weezer, Jim class heroes, Katy Perry, many, many others. He says this, now streaming has eradicated the middle class and that's the most heartbreaking part of it right now is just feast or famine for songwriters. Yeah. So, yeah. Ugh. Well, I hope whatever UMG uh, and title are kind of working with, I hope this is taken into consideration as they kind of look at different potential models for the streaming world. We'll see. We will. Sh we shall see. Yeah. By the way, we didn't do this at the top, but in case you don't know, the guy that I get to spend my weekends with as we uh, yap about this fabulous business, he is none other than Jay Gilbert. He is, the music he is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with a couple of little companies you might have heard of, like Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. And Thank you, damn, sir handsome guy <laughs> thank you for having me and my good friend over here mike etchart is longtime host of sound and vision radio formerly of sst records warner music capital emi and universal music groups and uh thank you for that thank you for the kind words always good indeed indeed so let's jump over to the next one jay the next story is from music ally how do how do streaming algorithms change the way we listen to music yeah and algorithms is one of those words that it, it People just get irate sometimes when yeah. you just say the word. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, 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 calm down. Yeah. It's just, it's just not all algorithms are necessarily negative. And as they point out in this piece from Music Ally, you know, there, there are a lot of things, cooking a meal, tying your shoelace, finding your way to the office. Those are all algorithms, you know, albeit running on the squidgy pink computer inside your skull <laughs> rather than a, an electronic device. Um, so getting back to streaming, these are digital service digital services that are driven by all kinds of algorithms. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a value to tightening up your language and specifying recommendation algorithms, because that's what we're usually worrying about with streaming. Otherwise we risk, you know, ending up like a politician demanding tech giants, get rid of algorithms. You know, algorithms are actually pretty amazing. If you've ever looked at, you know, Pandora, um, with the music genome, if you've ever you know played around with you know Spotify's Discover Weekly, Release Radar, sometimes these algorithms can be absolutely incredible at what they're pointing out, which is recommending music based on your listening habits. Here's some things that you would probably like, and I'm telling you, at least for my tastes, they do a really good job. They do. They absolutely do. And this article mentions the UK's Center for Data Ethics and Innovation has published its report on what impact the streaming services recommendation algorithms might be having on music consumption. So very, very interesting. Uh, 
you know, what, what is kind of going on behind the scenes and should we be freaked out about it? And I think a lot of people think that because there's this algorithmic piece to the puzzle that it's, it's forcing things on them that wouldn't normally be, be in their sphere of interest. And I think it's just not necessarily true. It says there are widely held beliefs that the use of these technologies might serve to unfairly advantage certain groups at the expense of others, which is in the report's intro. This report finds that evidence proving or disproving whether these technologies embed, amplify, or introduce unfair biases is mixed and at times inconclusive. Yeah. And, and that there's a link to that report, um, Mm -hmm. in this article, but they pull out some of the, you know, the most important ones. Um, one of them is that, you know, the majority of listens on digital service providers like Apple music, Pandora, Deezer, Spotify remain unguided by recommend recommendation algorithms, a majority. Right. And he says, that's a key point that these algorithms are not yet the dominant factor driving music discovery. Even though we often assume that they are, the ballpark figure is around 30% of streams are quote unquote guided. That's, you know, from the reports terminology, while 70% are user led. You would think that that was the other way around based on how people freak out about algorithms. Right. Then there's another thing brought up and it says, and this is a biggie, regardless of user gender, music streaming platforms appear to predominantly recommend white male artists to users at a significant rate, claims the report. It notes that a low share of music by female artists, both on platforms and in the industry more widely, and music critics recommendations are also factors here and points to some studies showing that recommendation systems may increase the number of women songs listened to. How interesting that that it says more report, more research is required uh, in the conclusions in the conclusions here, as it is for the questions of whether music recommendation systems are biased on race, ethnicity grounds, and where there is a lack of substantial research. This lack seems noteworthy in itself. Why has nobody found the funding for such studies? Perhaps <laughs> they even will. Yes, perhaps so, they will now. Yes. Uh, I don't know. It's very, I mean, all of these things are just interesting and I, I, I don't, I don't hold a fear of them, nor do I think they are, are perfect. Um, it's just part of the, part of the thing. But all I know, Jay, is I'm not carrying stacks of albums when I go around town. I have the world's music. They are heavy, but I have the world's music in my phone and, by and large, that's a pretty awesome consumer experience. Yeah, it really is. And listen, there are biases out there. Um, I had mm-hmm. lunch with a, a dear friend of mine a couple of days ago who just happens to be a woman of color. And we were talking about some of these things like chat GPT and AI and, you know, some of these things that are pulling information, let's say from the web or from, you know, various sources, but there are biases in that information that they're pulling from. And it's really garbage in garbage out. And I think a lot of people just assume that these algorithms that digital service providers use, um, are biased. And at least in this report, it's encouraging that they're not as maybe biased as, people might've assumed. So, um, I highly encourage people to, uh, click into this article and read that, um, the, uh, report, it, it comes with an executive summary, which is only like four or five paragraphs. So if you're busy or you don't like to read long reports, uh, a lot of it is in that executive summary. So, um, the report's called the impact of recommendation algorithms on the UK's music industry. 
And great job by Music Ally. We love those guys. Yes. And another interesting article. This is from Music Watch. Generation Audio, a different way to look at audio listeners. Oh, and yeah. this was a really interesting one. Oh because, of course, like everybody, I run to see what, what am I classified as. Oh, you know, of and course. They, <laughs> and you, you and I kind of defy classification sometimes because usually when you're over 30, you may not be listening to the kinds of music that you and I listen to or go to as many shows as we listen to. I don't know. This, this piece from Music Watch was posted by Russ Krupnik. Um, and, uh, the headline is generation audio, a different way to look at audio listeners. And I want to go through, um, all of these. Um, but he starts it out by saying that audio is a category ripe for segmentation. Amen. Genres are a great start. You know, he says, if I say classic rock or hip hop, what vastly different imagery comes to mind? We can create similar images showing someone who prefers listening to music on the radio versus one who prefers streaming. There's age demographics and groupings such as Gen Z. The problem with all of this is we're assuming all classic rock fans are older or that all of the 75 million Gen Z population listen to audio in just the same way. Well, and this kind of gets back to something we've mentioned a number of times on the podcast, which is we, you know, we recall when Big Champagne, which was kind of the really the first and an excellent sort of data company that was looking at at the activity back then and kind of file sharing. And some of the things that we noted back in those days was that, hey, guess what? People don't segment themselves. They don't only listen to country. They don't only listen to hip hop. Generally speaking, people listen to lots and lots of different things. And that's been a big... So when you... We all want to kind of put people in boxes, but the bottom line is that I'm sure there's lots of people that are in several boxes uh, that we're going to talk about here. So, yeah. But it is really fascinating to see because uh, they talk about um, eight distinct audio clusters yeah. that they kind of break it down. And uh, the first one is what they call... Um, audio lessons. That means somebody who's age 13 to 21. And that's two of three auto, um, audio hours are spent on music streaming and social video platforms such as TikTok. Uh, most diverse demographically. So this is kind of the first one. Again, ages 13 through 21. And uh, it says you guessed that this group was the heaviest consumer of audio content. And you'd have guessed wrong. <laughs> they are only average consumers of audio content based on weekly listening time. Interesting. Uh, music, Yeah, exactly. Music streaming and listening to or watching music and videos from TikTok or similar short form platforms account for 61% of their listening time. Nothing else comes close. They haven't yet adopted the podcasting habit. They do have a bit of an itch for downloads. Yes. The kind their parents might have relied on during the peak of the iTunes boom. Uh, but this is the most diverse group ethnically nearly 18 no, I'm sorry nearly all 85% are students that's yeah. very interesting not surprisingly their favorite genre is hip hop yeah i mean we make assumptions and you know yes. we talked about glenn and how he dis, uh, dispels myths and assumptions and what i love about this piece is just what you just went through that some of that surprises me that's news to me um so that was audio lessons right uh, 13 to 21 mm-hmm. The next one is what they call peak audio. 
Um, and it's small, but significant peak audio represents 22 to 24 year olds. They consume audio at a rate 60% higher than average on the basis of listening hours. You might describe them as music hedonists, uh, since every format gets above average attention from this group, radio, TV, streaming, owned social and live streams, three out of four are employed, creating disposable income that they may use to pay for a subscription to a music streaming service or Sirius XM satellite radio. And again, hip hop is this group's uh, favorite genre also. But again, they're breaking this down by age, and that's a super narrow age group for this peak audio group. Only t- only two years, essentially, right. or, 20, or three years, 20, 22 through 24. Yep. Yep. As we move out of that group and into the next group, and this is more or less the ages of 25 to 33, it's the podcasts and playlist group. Uh, as it says, as they settle into careers and families, audio listening of these 25 to 33-year-olds dips from the peak but it's still robust. More than a quarter of their listening goes to music streaming, and they also have an appetite for music live streams. This is the highest indexing group when it comes to podcasts, where they spend one to 10 hours. Interesting. Their favorite podcast genre is comedy, followed closely by true crime, that's my house with my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening to music on social platforms continues to be important, but we see a shift from video apps like TikTok and Reels to traditional apps such as Facebook and Twitter. They are the top group when it comes to attending live music events at clubs, arenas, or festivals. And we start to see, generally speaking, in this demographic range, you start to see family size expanding, a pattern that holds for the next two segments. Nearly six in 10 pay for a music or serious subscription in this group. Interesting. The next one is for people aged uh, 34 to 39, and they call this modern traditionalists. And they represent a turning point whereby music streaming is by far the leading form of listening with nearly a third of hourly share and engagement with music on social video platforms beginning to wane. Complementing the passion for music on streaming platforms, this group is also attracted to music on Sirius Satellite Radio, TV audio channels, as well as live streams. Um, Hip hop remains the top genre for this segment as well, and 53% pay for a music or satellite radio subscription. Hmm. All right. The next one is a uh, modern tradit. No, you just did that. Sorry. I generation. Wait, you just, uh, yes. The I generation is the next one. <laughs> There's so many here, Jay. Uh, this, this is, and so the I generation is, let me scroll back up. That is ages 40 to 48 more or less. And, this is the generation that grew up with iTunes and iPods in the early 2000s. Jay, you remember those things? Oh, I sure iTunes do. I still have mine. Me too. Uh, and the 2000s, they've grown into their 40s, 40 to 48 to be exact. While the iPods are generally gathering dust in a drawer, their appetite for audio is robust. They spend 35% more time than average listening to audio. They spend an hour more each week streaming music, but that's not what makes this segment unusual. Toddlers, when MTV launched, iGeneration is the group most attracted to music on TV, mm. whether listening to music channels or watching music video programming. They also over-index on listening to vinyl records. Mm. I Want My MTV has been replaced by I Want My SXM, uh, as listening to music on Sirius Satellite Radio is nearly 40% higher than among this segment. Growing up during a time when many lamented that nobody will pay for music anymore, 50% are paying subscribers 
are paying subscribers to an audio service. The digital native label sticks when it comes to the spoken word. Though iGeneration are only average consumers of broadcast news, traffic, or sports, they way over-index when it comes to audiobooks and digital music and talk offerings from radio broadcasters. That is fascinating. Uh, the next group, as we get a little bit older here, is Aging Quietly. Life seems to be getting in the way of audio listening for this group. You know, they're aged 49 to 60. They're the lightest consumers of audio, averaging only 16 hours per week. They partake in all formats of audio entertainment, but nearly across the board, they spend less than the other groups, less time. Um, They are, however, heavier consumers of radio, both broadcast and satellite. Their music listening on these formats is higher than most. And they also tune into spoken word on AM, FM and Sirius. So Mm. the tipping point for genres happens here with two of the three listening um, to classic rock and only a quarter enjoying hip hop country becomes a key genre here the rate of subscribing to an audio service drops by half compared to the younger segments only one in four um, pay family size also shrinks as the kids are off to college and starting their own households right so we now move up to the boomer benders that's ages 61 to 66 (laughs) and let's see again according to this Uh, it's possible that grandparents could spend as much time with audio as their teen grandkids. It sure is. Boomer Ben, Boomer Blenders. I'm sorry. It's not Benders, Blenders. Uh, Boomer Blenders, uh, average 22 hours of audio each week. Even more if you add in their broadcast news or sports consumption. Half of Boomer Blenders are retired, which frees up time to listen. They accumulate all those hours by spreading it across formats. One in five hours is music streaming. Add to that a healthy dose of listening on broadcast radio, serious satellite radio, CDs, downloads, and podcasts. And it's easy to see how the hours add up. This is also a sweet spot for vinyl. The generation that grew up with physical formats and owning music hasn't let go. They're a bit soft when it comes to digital spoken words, such as audiobooks and web-based news, traffic, and sports, but they're 30% stronger listeners of spoken word on broadcast radio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was, those boomer blenders are, are between 61 and 66 years 66. old. 66. Yeah, and yeah. then the next one is uh, 67 and older, and they call that classic and plastic. <laughs> so, you know, they're more than twice as likely to listen to music on broadcast AM, FM radio and 40% more likely to be listening to news, traffic, sports on radio. Makes sense, but not too much on broadcasters, digital platforms, classic and plastic also like Sirius XM and are more than twice as likely to be listening to satellite Radio CDs account for 16% of their music and podcast time, uh, nearly four times as much as the average, right? They're a little bit older. Um, Here's the surprise about our oldest group. Many are music streamers. In fact, when it comes to just music, they spend as much time streaming as they do listening to broadcast radio. Well, wow. there you have it. I, I just, How about that? Yeah, I just love this uh, report uh, from Music Watch. Thank you, Russ Krupnik. Um, fantastic and really cool. Like, There's a nice graphic if you want to uh, check it out in, in the piece. But uh, really great piece from Music Watch. You know, and I'm going to ask you, there's much talk in this about satellite radio. Yeah. And I, I, you have satellite radio in your car, yeah. do you not? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I haven't seen the latest statistics on that, um, but we just got it again. And I used to, when I used to um, 
when I worked at Universal, in fact, I my drive south, I would go down PCH, and there is just dreadful radio coverage. Especially when you go through the canyon, you lose it, right? If you will go through, yes. you, I don't know if you ever went through Malibu Canyon. Of course I did. Yeah. Yes. When you get through there, it just goes away. It There's no signal. Yes. So I got satellite radio and I liked it at the time, but then I left that job and I wasn't making that same commute and I just disconnected for whatever reason. My wife's car now, we have it because uh, she has a commute that she wants to have kind of steady radio. And you know, it's come a long way in that amount of time, in that in that in that uh, in that span there, and it's really great. And I've listened to a lot of different, uh, you know, it, you know, I jump around between genres, and and I have my handy, you know, um, guide uh, Shazam next to me oh, in case I'm yeah. I, I don't know that song, and I just want to you know make come back to it and listen again. But it's really an impactful uh, platform at the moment, from what I'm gathering, and it's I've really enjoyed it lately, and yeah. it's fun to be back. But it's been a while for me. Yeah, there's some really great stations on there that I that I love listening to. Um, sometimes, you know, if I'm driving, um, especially in Los Angeles, the traffic is so crazy. I like to have pretty mellow stuff going. Right. Sometimes, and you know, like those coffee house. Uh, there's one I was listening to called Country Coffee House, and it was really more folk and Americana, and it was absolutely wonderful. You know, yes. stuff. Um, but you know, there's there's so many great, like even just news channels and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, I don't, I don't commute much anymore, so I don't listen to it uh, as often as I used to. It, nor do I, but, but I, I've gone down to LA for, um, for the last, for a bunch of different things, uh, over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, for, for me, that's a fairly substantial drive and it's nice to, uh, to pop in satellite radio and, and for the most part, you know, no real commercials and, you know, and it's and it's interesting to hear, you know, because every station and every on, on satellite or, or even terrestrial, it's different playlists. It's different things, you know, different demographics that they're reaching out to. And so I kind of it's it's like a whole different collection of friends that are introducing you to different music that you weren't in your other group of friends. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I've, I've learned I've a bunch of artists I really like that I w- wasn't hearing on terrestrial radio or wasn't being fed that. And uh, yeah, I've just been loving it. So it's fun to see them talking about satellite radio so much in this particular piece. Yeah, I tend to get um, rid of it and then resubscribe, get rid of it, resubscribe. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I do, but I'll, I'll tell you the last couple of years I've been listening more to Apple Music's radio um, than anything right. else. The shows that they have are, are just more of interest to me. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're really well done. Um, Elton John's got a really cool um, show. It's great. They have uh, just lots of them that to choose from. So if you're looking to um, looking for good things to listen to for your commute, check out Apple Music Radio as well. Yeah. Well, let's do the last one, Jay, in our last few minutes of the show. Sure. Uh, From Digital Media Association, it's the Fan Engagement 2023 Report, which is downloadable. And we say this every time about these reports, but they're beautiful. Oh, (laughs) they do. Yeah. Somebody spends an inordinate amount of time making these really user friendly and just just in terms of the yeah. look, I'm just, just gorgeous. Well, data yeah, can be kind of a... uh, dry and, yes. and boring sometimes. And it, they do such a great job as, as you're saying of, you know, just presenting it in a very colorful and easy to read uh, way. As we jump into some of the things from this report, 
Um, this is DEMA, Digital Media Association, and they commissioned um, a consulting uh, company, FTI, to conduct an online quantitative, quantitative that's easy for you to say, survey of uh, 3,000 U.S. music listeners. And some of these things that they came up with uh, by asking uh, these opinions were surprising and some of them were kind of what you would, uh, what you would assume. Um, and it talks about how they consume their music and, uh, you know, like for example, 70, 72% of streamers say they plan to continue listening to artists and songs, uh, that streaming services recommend. Um, so that comes back to what we were talking about earlier with algorithms. If, if an algorithm serves you something up, you know, it, it's in their best interest to have it be something that you really would like. Right. And they're saying that 72% of people who are served up recommendations will continue listening. Yeah. They also say by a significant margin, streamers say that streaming services, about 61% of them say this best deliver on the ability to customize based on their preferences compared to other formats, such as social media platforms. Only 7% say that content downloaded from a virtual music store, 6% and traditional AM FM radio at 5%. Yeah. And I, I guess it, it is my age, but I still, I love to jump over to AM radio occasionally and yeah. FM radio. Yeah. I mean, I love jumping around. That's that's what I love the best. It's like, oh, I'm getting kind of tired of this. I'm going to jump over to this. Yeah. And point. when I'm driving, I'll, I'll pop on AM because, you know, I want to hear the traffic. <laughs> you know, I hear right. still. What's, what's going on, right? One of the things that uh, I thought was interesting is that 91% of streamers feel it's important to have the ability to decide what to listen to and when. And that sounds mm-hmm. obvious, but it's not because a lot of what happenings or a lot of what happens in streaming is uh, lean back. It's more, you know, whether yeah. you're listening to, not to pick on Pandora, um, but even longer playlists, it becomes sort of background noise to work or something else. And you're really not choosing what's coming next. But they're saying that 91% of streamers, they want to have that ability to decide, you know, what's coming up next. Yes, exactly. You know, and, and talking about how streaming empowers fans, benefits the music, music industry, you're talking about persistent engagement and relentless discovery and rediscovery. And I think, you know, we it, it's so funny when you talk about the sort of different generations. And I look at my kids and, you know, they they did. You know, we grew up in a time of commercials that you just couldn't avoid, you know, and with streaming, it's just not that. And, you know, we would wait, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, but you know, maybe in, in an hour they'd play, I don't know, 12 songs, maybe something like that. And, you know, now you can just, you can just pretty much bypass that and get a full hour of music, let's say almost. Mm. And it's just a completely different, uh, different experience for those that just came up in the streaming industry. Yeah. But I love that phrase, persistent engagement and relentless discovery and rediscovery because I mean how many times do you remember as a kid when you hear a song on the radio and you you're like maybe you heard the last part of it and you're like what was that yeah. and they wouldn't back announce no. it and you're like 
oh my God, you go to a record store and you try to explain, I think the lyrics were this. Right. And then the, the person behind the counter would look at you saying, I uh, look, I worked yeah. in those record stores and had people yes. come up to me and ask, sing you that last line uh, of a song. And you just touched on something that I think is really important. And that's, you know, what Will Page has told us. It's, uh, it's not all discovery, it's rediscovery uh, as well. Right. The other thing that this report points out that I think is really interesting is that, uh, you know, the people who stream the most music, they're also going to spend the most money on it, you know, whether it's, you know, merch or shows or whatever that is, experiences, you know, they spend more money on music um, because they're more engaged. And I think sometimes that that gets lost. They point out that streaming facilitates a deeper connection uh, between music fans and the old and new music that they love. Streamers say that they spend on average $387 each year compared to $242 uh, spent by non-music streamers. Right. And they and streamers spend more time both listening to music on all formats, an average of 1,283 hours per year, and listening to music via streaming services, an average of 930 hours per year. Non-streamers spend an average of 792 hours a year listening to music on all formats. So you're talking about, again, uh, I'm trying to look just briefly, like, I mean, almost probably three times more than non-streamers yeah. when you're talking about just their participation and their active music listening. So yeah. that's a big difference. Yeah. And there's a couple of other things in here that I, I one kind of surprised me, and that was that 66% of streamers say that they explore or engage in new genres while streaming uh, more than using any other format. And I thought that was great, but they point out the top three common ways of discovering new music uh, for streamers. And one is pretty obvious. That's through streaming services. The second one was friends recommendations. And that's one of the things that I think is so cool about streaming is that you can share a playlist with me or we can build one together or you can send me a link. Like, I know you like this sort of stuff. Check this out. Or, Hey, I've built this playlist. You know, I had breakfast this morning with a a friend of mine and we were just talking about, you know, playlists that uh, we love and we share with each other. Of course, the third one of discovering or third way of discovering music, um, they say is through traditional AM FM radio stations. Well, and then the thing that kind of grabbed me too was the top six music genres with the biggest increase in listening among streamers. So uh, number one is at 66% is Afropop or Afrobeats. So, you know, we've talked a lot about this in terms of, of, you know, when we were growing up, it was almost exclusively um, uh, American or British music for the most part. And streaming has just kick that door down. Oh, absolutely. And now yeah. there is an enormous amount of world music that is available to anybody who wants to go looking for it. And so this Afrobeat, Afro, uh, I'm sorry, Afropop, Afrobeats at 66% increase in listening among streamers mm-hmm. is huge. But then again, they can, right? I mean, you it, if you go looking, it's there. Right. It, it's that, that access. And, you know, there's a couple of genres on here that, you know, like Americana had uh, 60%. Mm-hmm. Uh, increase and same with uh, you know Latin music was almost 60% and we've we've been seeing Latin and K-pop you know really explode and now you're seeing it blended into a lot of different playlists on these streaming services I was a little surprised that Afropop and Afrobeats was higher than Latin music 
Um, Me too. It, but but again, this is um, biggest increases, not necessarily the entire um, entire pie. But uh, you know, I think that it's the other thing that they uh, they point to in this report is fan engagement. And that it just across the board, people who stream, you know, they're, they're bigger fans. They listen longer, they spend more money and streaming is their number one source of, uh, of discovering music. So, you know, it, it we talk about how it, there needs to be, um, more transparency and there needs to be better remuneration for songwriters and performers with streaming. And I know we're going to continue to report on that and talk about that and advocate for that. Um, but it's, it's great to know that this is still so healthy and that these streamers are very engaged. Absolutely. Well, and I just, I love that the exploration of different genres is so easy when you're talking about streaming. And, you know, when, in, a, in our day growing up, when, when it was physical media, um, I don't know about you, but I didn't have an unlimited budget. And so I was, you have to be, you, in those days, you had to be super uh, careful with your money. And, you know, you didn't want to spend too much money on new stuff that you might not like, you know, it was hard to kind of experiment. And now with streaming, it's easy. And it, I love that. I just love that about streaming. Absolutely. So on that note, Jay, it's time to go and I'm going to go to the gym. I don't know what you're going to do, uh, but let's wrap up this edition. I want to thank our sponsors because we could not do it without them. The Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Boy, we really thank you. And we do thank our listeners, you, the listener, for checking us out every week. Jay and I certainly appreciate it, we and sure we, do. nor do we take it for granted. Nope. We really appreciate the listeners, and it's so fun when we get uh, emails and reaches out, and or reaching, or reach outs, I suppose. That's what the right way of saying it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. So on that note, on behalf of the hardest working man in show business this week, Jay Gilbert and myself, not nearly that hard of working individual, <laughs> we will say thank you, because we'll be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. <laughs> You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.